Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North. To all citizens of the world, welcome to the Forum. Today we kick off our much-anticipated and delayed series, namely the mysteries of the Poles. And since we're in such an Antarctica craze these days, it's only natural to start there. Now, the guest for today was not someone I'd imagined we would have on for this, but apparently he's such a generalist that he even handles this subject like a boss. I'm referring to the computer programmer and self-made tech and digicoin guru, Cliff High. It turns out that we had so much to discuss regarding this that the four five hours South Pole orgy barely covered the grounds to the depths I hoped for. But hey, at least it's hours packed with exciting info. We start somewhat slow, but it accelerates as it unfolds. Part one lays the groundwork. From part two, we speed throughout history from antediluvian times and eventually ties the knot together with contemporary times in part three, with several crescendos on the way. You will learn some interesting facts, suspicious riddles and enticing speculations around the general scenario theories concerning the Antarctica mystique. But first let me introduce our guest properly. Mr. High was born into a military family with a father working for Intel and therefore, having lived abroad, moved around a lot in his years of growth. Though an autodidact in several areas, he's been into computers from its inception and has kept up to date, currently even teaching himself quantum computer programming. He's worked for Microsoft, GEC Marconi in London, La Unum, Mexico City, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and many other companies as a contract software engineer or programmer. He also has a strong background in linguistics and human behavioural studies. Cliff High owns tons of wits and self-irony and humbly describes himself as an old bald guy living out in the woods screwing around with computers. This understatement doesn't hide the fact that he programs in over a dozen computer languages and he has a patent on computer-assisted reading technology which allows reading from computer screens at up to 2,000 words per minute. But his claim to fame is his brilliant 93 invention called WebBot, which took until 97 for completion to get the code done amidst other jobs earning a living which is an internet bot computer program that through predictive linguistics is able to intercept global events before they happen. The web bot forecast has had documented successes like predicting the 13,000 Bitcoin price, Trump's election, the anthrax attack in Washington, the crash of American 587, the Columbia disaster, the Northeast power outage, and the Banda Ek Air earthquake, to name some examples. 
The system uses a prologue artificial intelligence computer language that through word and phrase centered processes extracts naturally occurring leaks from the collective unconscious through everyone's routine communications. He founded the Half Past Human Adventures and offers subscription-based access to these detailed reports from the webbot's results. Although he doesn't write books, his many Alta or Asymmetric Language Trend Analysis reports are extensive and measures up to books. Like most genius inventors, his creativity and productivity finds outlets in several areas. He is naturally involved in boat water life, has built a Pacific proa catamaran with a sail plan of his own invention, the advanced crane sprit rig. He has fleet of skin on frame vessels including Kui Uki Uki, a sailing trimaran adaption of an omiak. Cliff is a natural philosopher and has been a practicing yogi for over 50 years and practicing Aikido and Zazen Chan meditation for over 30 years. He's been featured in the History Channel, magazines and innumerable podcasts and radio shows like Coast to Coast. He describes himself as fiercely dedicated, focused on life, freedom and the future with a desire to free people from tyranny, reject the Fed's fake money called dollars and embrace Bitcoin, gold or silver. And curiously, you will learn that notwithstanding all this other stuff, his information on Antarctica is outstanding and contributes extensively to removing its volatile veil. Enjoy. Welcome to Forum Borealis Cliff. Thank you very much. This uh, show today is rather special for me because when we started out originally we i think the three first guests we had on were lavender pharrell and dolan i bet you know all those three guys oh yes <laughs> yes yeah. uh, very familiar and the thing is i asked every one of them about antarctica i was dead set very early on to cover antarctica uh, for me that's been a mystery for many many years and maybe i'll I'll share some of my anecdotes as to why uh, during this uh, debate today. But what happened was that after I put out a promo, uh, we, we just fused the Antarctica session of all of them. Right. All of a sudden, there was Antarctica everywhere at YouTube. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying I started that or anything. It's just that I, I kind of were a little ahead of the pack if you see what I mean. It was just sure. excellent timing on my part or dumb luck. But <laughs> that made me kind of demotivated because there was a lot of crap too, you know? When something is popular, uh, yeah. it's better getting exploited. You see what I mean? <laughs> it's polluted, yes. I do understand, yes. Yeah. So, uh, therefore, I postponed and I postponed and I postponed. But like I told you on the mail uh, the other day, we're ready now to kick off our series. We already have taped one episode of Antarctica with someone else, and now we're having you on. And man, I'm excited because 
And, and I have to say this too before I give you the ball. Almost plea ignorance here. Uh, I, I didn't know who you were, and I got mail after mail from people who said, "Hey, you gotta get on this cliff high guy." And uh, when even I had uh, an insider in the team pushing me, I eventually yielded and started checking <laughs> you out. And fortunately, uh, the Antarctica, you talked about that several places, uh, and that came to my ear. And then I knew, bang, I had the perfect alibi to get you on. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And it's so interesting, your approach is so original that even if I didn't have a series on Antarctica, I would have you on for this. Right. So with that uh, short introduction, people, you understand today, this is going to be the galore covering uh, Antarctica, which is very pop now. Yeah. And that's the, but you know, um, it's popular because of the, uh, all the unknowns involved. Exactly. The mystery. Correct. Okay, so I'm kind of new to you, Cliff. But you know what? I think most of those who will listen in today will not be new to you. They will know you already. So it will be boring to beat too much upon your background and all that stuff because everybody will know know it already. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I've, I've, we've gone through that BS before. Yeah. <laughs> Right. But for my sake, uh, we need a little of it. But we, I promise we're not going to spend too much time on your background. That will be boring to them. Everybody knows it but me. But if you could give me like the, the, the highlights, the five-minute version sure. <laughs> of what you're doing and how you get into this, um, if nothing else, then for my benefit. Sure. I'm, I'm self-taught. I'm an old guy. I fell into computers at a, um, an appropriate age for myself and was one of the um, uh, first subcontractors at uh, small little firms when they were starting off like Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And so I've worked for Microsoft and a number of uh, state and federal governments, um, state governments, uh, large um, universities, all of this kind of thing as a software engineer for 30 or 40, 30 years plus. And I, um, in the process, I came up with this idea that uh, the burgeoning internet was a place to mine for uh, emotional shifts around language. I'm very much language focused. Hmm. Uh, I know a number of computer languages and a number of um, human languages and uh, was uh, aware of the differences. It's always intrigued me and I started getting into this in the 90s and I wrote a software program that does what we today would call data scraping and data mining. And then I built a little tiny software engine that um, hunts for prescient words because I was convinced that words were about emotion and that emotion was about time. And using that, I've been able to um, accurately predict a number of very interesting occurrences that then manifested. My level of prediction, if you want to look at it, is about half of the stuff that I, that I say will occur does occur. Uh, within the time frame that it's uh, suggested to occur in about another half of the remainder occurs, just not at the time projected. And the the correlation is maybe 70 to 80% because what I'm actually doing is forecasting linguistics. And so I'm better than chance, but I'm twice as good as chance should allow in these forecasts. And sometimes it's absolutely spectacular where I can say that in three weeks from now, this, this occurred back a number of years ago here in the United States. Mm -hmm. I said three weeks from now, 
Um, in uh, late summer, we're going to have the following 300 words appear in the mainstream media all around a power outage. And sure enough, three weeks later, we had the um, uh, power outage in the Northeast and uh, even down to the language about the train yard in, in the uh, junction and all of this kind of thing showed up. So out of the 300 words I said would show up, we had like 270 that did. Hmm. And, uh, and because I'm not really looking at the events, but rather looking at the language that's being forecast, it's, it's not as though I can say in three weeks from today, X will occur. It doesn't really work that way. So it's not as though I have a calendar and I can go look at a particular date and see what happens. Rather, it is I'm brought in some language and the, and the mystery and the work for me is to determine when that language will appear based on these timing clues that I think I'm able to see. So I can get some stuff out a number of years and then I also get some stuff out a number of months. So I was, I was able to predict the Banda Achi earthquake, but I was about eight months early on that. And wow. this, this really relates to the nature of language and time and so on. The curious part of all of this is that it took me a number of years. So it took me from 93 to 97 to write all the software code and to do the very first run, I called it, when I went out and did a major web scraping and brought back some stuff and made some forecasts. Mm. And some, since that very first run, uh, something that I would... Okay, so I always need to stop and say my motivation was to make some money in a very lazy way and figure <laughs> out ahead figure out ahead of time how people would I didn't want to work for a living, right? I no, was no. getting tired of this actual struggle. So I decided, okay, I'm going to do stock market crap and I'm going to figure out ahead of time what stocks people are going to go into based on the linguistics. And I don't care about fundamentals of stocks or charts or any of that sort of thing. I'm doing this just on the emotional uh, oomph in people that leaks out. And so I did that and I was shocked in my first run because I was aiming at getting a, um, uh, a bead on the stock market and I was centering a, around a computer company that had the stock ticker of Sun, S-U-N. This was Stanford University Network. Yeah. And, um, and I, uh, I centered on that and I started getting all these weird things about the big scary ball in the sky, not Sun, the computer company. And so I got a little intrigued. And then the other thing that showed up in that very first run that really had me intrigued was a giant mass of data relative to the, to the stock market stuff. And all this giant mass of data was focused on was Antarctica. And this was back in 1998. Wow. So that was one of the first. Correct. Uh, wow. And it was like, oh, cool. That's so relevant then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like, wow. Yeah. What's all this stuff in here for? I, you could not get further away from the New York stock market than Antarctica. About when was this? I did that run in, it took me all of 1997 to do the data mining. And I, mm. I started seeing the Antarctica stuff in the interpretation in the last month of this in December of 97 and in through to March of 98, because it took me a number of months to figure out what I was looking at. Yeah. Exactly. So 20 years back. And anyway, it's intriguing. You know, I started following up on it because it was, it shouldn't have appeared in the data. And, and then I went back and realized what I had done relative to the prescience and the types of word I, words I was looking at and how much at that point I did not know mm. about um, emotions, linguistics, and so on. So then I began a 20-year study of uh, being human and emotions and the way people think about it. And I came across all these things that were oh, like emotional wheels, like a color wheel. You know, it's a graphic way of looking at how emotions relate. Right. And then I started doing my own versions of these. Uh, let's see, the guy's name is 
Pluchik. He's a famous uh, sociologist in the 70s or the 80s. Mm-hmm. And he came up with a really good one that I augmented a bunch and used that as my uh, dial, so to speak, for emotions and, uh, and how they relate to time. And then I started getting further and further into it. But a consistent pro- part of the process over all of these years has been Antarctica. It's always shown up in every data set to the greater or or smaller uh, degree. And usually it will do so a number of months or years ahead of major news coming out of, of Antarctica relative to what the data is saying. So just interestingly, I mean, I get some weird forecasts that there's going to be I see some language in, I think it was maybe 2002 or three, mm-hmm. about um, a subsea channel off the coast of Antarctica that was going to be um, blocked by uh, an earthquake, was my supposition based on what I was seeing in the data, about um, rock columns that would break off and fall over and so on. Mm-hmm. So I made the supposition it was earthquake and the channel would be blocked. Well, uh, six years later, seven years later, we have the situation where they discover, oh, look, there are new currents in this one particular channel. And they send a a drone down there and it says, oh, geez, we've found about uh, 1,100 volcanoes and a bunch of them have cracked open and filled up this um, channel in the subsea floor. And that's what's causing the currents to rise up in a way they didn't do before. Right. And so, you know, it was no big major story or anything, but it was somehow so significant it showed up in the data sets a number of years ahead of time. Mm. Oh, there's so much to pick apart there. But uh, I want to rewind a little. It sounds to me then that what you're doing is you're kind of studying the cycles, the lingual cycles as they appear on the internet. No, I I don't care about Okay, the internet and the humans are, are, it's the humans I care about and the language that leaks out of them. Okay, so here's here's how it actually works at a more detailed level. But, but you obviously use internet, not radio, papers, TV, whatever, but it's the... Oh, sure, sure, sure. I, I actually could if I, right. Oh, no, no, I, I don't. Okay. <laughs> all right. So I use the internet, but curiously, of course, all of the, um, the newspapers over the, as the internet started really becoming more robust, people started getting a little bit more trust in it. Mm. Newspapers, for instance, uh, digitized all their archives and put them on there. So there was a big dump of data that came onto the internet over the nineties and the early two thousands. Mm. And then as each new social order comes into the internet in seriousness and their government finally starts putting their material out on the internet, we get another big data dump as they all go through these big digitizing efforts. And so the internet grows not um, methodically, but episodically. And uh, the episodes that are that are dumped or have been in the past, usually what I would call long-term language, all right? Mm. So, so it turns out that like legal language is... Um, uh, affects you in a in a very low emotional level, but can do so with a long duration. So what I did for all of the language was to go through and decide on all of these different kinds of words, what's its um, uh, duration, its impact, its spread, the propagation levels, all of these kind of things. So from two thousand from ninety eight, uh, all right. So I got all this data in 1998, and then I dawned on me, well. I don't know its lifespan. I don't know its shelf span on the internet. So I had to run these things I called propagation studies, where I would deliberately seed certain language into forum and see how far it would spread and how long it would take to spread and so on. A lot of it was, you know, um, 
uh, clickbait kind okay. of a thing, right? I w- just wanted to see if I could get specific kinds of language to spread around in the internet. And if so, what was the combinations? How long did it take to die off if I didn't prompt it and these kind of things? Like specific phrases uh, or, or weird verbs? Correct. <laughs> okay. Uh, usually verbs and, and adverbs, I wanted to get into conversations. And I would do it in such a way that the... Um, all right. So, I, I, again, not to bore everybody, but… Do you but, have an example for us? Uh, I was good, just going to get into that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, so most people understand, uh, internalize about 125,000 English language words that are native English speakers. We'll just make that assumption. Okay. And, uh, but in their daily, uh, weekly, uh, even monthly use, they might only use, say, a subset that's 5,000 words or so. And so I was interested in those words that were outside of that usual group, because my premise is that we're psychic. All humans are antennae, and we're psychic, and we leak out impressions when we, if we're unaware of being psychic, we will still figure out some way of getting that psychic impression out of us. Mm. And my my premise is that we leak that out in the stuff that we type by the choice of words we make about usual conversations. Mm. So there might be three thousand words you would find that would dominate a garden. Forum, And it's the same 3,000 words being used over and over and over again with basic temporal um, displacement variations. So you're talking about the same kind of things this March that you did the previous March. Mm-hmm. You're just not really aware of it and mostly use the same language. But then one March you use some language that is different than all the previous Marches. And, and it, it's my uh, premise that that language was chosen consciously or not, due to a psychic impression that you needed to get out. Mm. And so you, an example in this might be people in a gardening forum discussing about their bodies quaking or shaking or these kind of things. Well, in a gardening forum where they just happen to mention, I worked so hard that all of my muscles were quaking. Why didn't they say quivering, shaking, or any of these other kinds of things? And, and so if you see a, an accumulation of that, aha, earthquake is coming. And these people right. just don't know any other way of expressing it, see? So that's that's a relatively trivial, in-your-face kind of an example, but sort of makes sense. Yeah, we're like the peasant and the cow, you know? He can mm-hmm. tell what's happening by studying the animal behavior, and you do the same thing uh, as for the homo sapien animal <laughs> of linguistic. <laughs> <laughs> correct, correct. I'm out there herding, herding uh, human cats, yes. That's it. <laughs> yes. We're cattle in your mercurial so, experiment. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's wonderfully hermetic, this thing. I, I just love it. But but you you obviously uh, well you, when you collect this stuff, it has to be. You, it's not manually. You, it has to be so, the software oh. doing it, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I get hundreds of millions. I've got a, a what I call a server garden. Right. So back in uh, the year two thousand, I think it was maybe two thousand one. I bought a uh, at great expense. I bought a. Um, uh, a, uh, what was the name of a Weiss a dual processing machine? One of the very first ones around. Mm. And, uh, this was a, a knockoff of a thing called a sequent, which was a, a giant dual processing box that was intended to compete with, um, tandem computers. And I've been using that as the core of my web scraping process for some time, but I'll get a hundred million at that time. I was getting a hundred million. Now it's well into the billions of, um, data points that are swept in as part of the process that is then in 
interpreted to provide the results. And uh, so, yeah, no, I don't do this manually. <laughs> I, I turn on the servers. You have a life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I turn on the servers on, a, on the process, and then about 18 or 20 days later, I come back and start doing the filtration and the other part of the processing in order to be able to do mm. the interpretation. Interesting. So it kind of sounds like uh, there are similar experiments out there. They're not working with language. But like collective studies, we heard about the consciousness. Um, oh, what's it called again? The oh, the Princeton eggs. Sure, the the CEG. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's it. Yeah, I've yeah, where the uh, little uh, theoretic random number generators yeah. Are, yeah. are spiked. Yeah, it's fine, but. I have to always say that I dispute that you can get any kind of a true random number out of a computer anyway. Well, they, they, it's just just because of the the random function, the RNDM function at the um, machine code level is operative, but it's only operative within a range. So it's mm. necessarily range bound randomness. Yeah. Well, it's it's binary for one. That's a limitation that you don't have to yeah, correct, uh, correct. face with humans. But they have uh, proven to to break the random principle. It, it is, oh, certainly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, no, it's factual. Yeah. And 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 I did and I did uh, tap into, and that's probably the big uh, test, right? They tapped into nine eleven. Did you too? Oh, yeah, sure. I, in June 12th of that year, I published uh, 400 and some odd words about what would be a military accident. Okay, military plus accident. Mm. Now, here's the thing. At the time, I didn't have the word terrorism coded. I'd only gotten up as far as the M's in the uh, Oxford English Dictionary subset oh. that was my original lexicon. Uh, it's tedious to go through, you know, uh, tens of thousands of words, hundreds of thousands of words, mm -hmm. and assign up to 64 values per word. And so it had taken me a number of years. And so by 2001, I was only up into the to the uh, M's, as I said, but I'd gotten as far as the military. <clears throat> and the data shows um, military accident was going to happen. And then I had a numeric reference that I was using at the time. Only I had it backwards in my in my actual code. Because I'm dyslexic, I'd actually encoded two values backwards hmm. uh, in reverse. And so I said, well, it's going to happen within 85 days of June 12th. And it's most likely to happen sooner in those 85 days than later. And then if I'd actually, uh, at the, then I went back after the fact and said, aha, look, I'd had this value reversed. And if I'd reversed that, I would have been able in June to say, oh, it's likely to happen, more likely to happen at the end of the 85-day period than at the beginning. Mm. And it described, you know, some aspects of the, of the uh, event we went through. Right. Well, that's uh, great because um, you have everything on record. So this isn't a matter of uh, allegations. This is a matter of... Uh, Documented facts, right? Yeah. You, you you publish everything. And Correct. Never taken anything down. Publish everything as as openly as I can. I don't share my source code or my results, mainly because I don't want to have to explain it, and also mm. because I program in a number of languages. So I, I use Latin, a lot of Latin for programming because Latin is very uh, temporally precise, mm. and so I just didn't want to have to translate for people and share it that way. Plus, it's a, it's a hodgepodge. I mean, I've got half a dozen different computing languages to do this. And these days, if I was going to do it, I could do the whole thing in Python. Right, right. Huh. Fascinating. It could be a show on its own. But Correct. Um, unfortunately, we will just have to move on now so we can get to the juicy stuff uh, related to the South Pole. That's what people are pining for. So 
But thank you for for that quick introduction, for my sake. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so now that I'm at Pear, yeah, we can move on now. Um, so you already mentioned how you got into Antarctica. It was one of the early things that came up on your radar, and I guess since it begins on A. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and because linguistically, I started at A. Um, you know, yeah. I just started with a, a friend of mine as a, was a coder, and he'd been uh, invited to uh, do a project for the Oxford English Dictionary guys, and he stripped off all of the de- the definitions and sent me their lexicon. And so I just began with A. <laughs> hmm. And it was long before it became this fashion, this uh, hot topic that it's now. Yeah. Yeah, and and I bet you, I know also that you you keep an eye on what's moving in the independent media. So obviously, you also have gotten the more mortal information that's floating about. <laughs> oh sure, oh yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 you seem to be a brilliant analyst too. So let's start with when did you suspect that something fishy or something penguin was going on down there? Uh, probably 1999, uh, because there was such a piling up of, of Antarctic data that I could not explain. It was at that time less mm, pertinent to what I was trying to interpret. So I was just sort of stashing it off in little bins, little, uh, sections of databases that I would create as it kept piling up. And, but I, I started realizing that there was uh, an inherent level of inbuilt contradiction within the language I was receiving. And that in, it, that alone intrigued me enough to investigate it at some depth uh, during the various um, lulls in the otherwise uh, you know chaotic process of staying alive. And so uh, I, in looking at that, it, it became quite evident that there was a – uh, because I was able to forecast the appearance of it. Even in, in the early 2000s, we started seeing uh, some interesting events that occurred relative to Antarctica. Mm. And and here's an interesting sort of aside, all right? I got a, maybe it was 1999 into 2000. Uh, it was, it was, it was a different process then. I wasn't able to do the runs as fast. The web scraping, the data mining off the internet was uh, quite a bit slower. Um, and I didn't have as much uh, in the way of a robust hardware platform uh, as I do now with my little server closet, my little garden of servers and, and drives. But I was able to get and see that there was um, an even forecast, the appearance of, let's call it an official narrative. Mm-hmm. So, the data sets were bringing back data that I could forecast that would say that, you know, in four months, there's going to be this language about Antarctica coming out. And when it does come out, it will have this sort of slant to it. The reason I say slant is because all of my language is based, uh, all of my language data mining and processing is based on an emotional quantifying um, array, a multidimensional array that's attached to each word. And so I get an emotional tone, if you will. Mm. And there's always an emotional tone that I was able to identify even by that early stage that one could think of as what I called officialdom. Okay. So Mm. it didn't matter what country it was. It didn't matter, you know, what their regime kind was, you know, communist, socialist, uh, you know, anarchist, it just didn't seem to matter. There's always an officialdom tone that has this, um, let's just say we could identify it as being um, patronizing. Okay. Sure. There's only one anarchist regime in the world and that's the internet. 
<laughs> yeah, right, right, <laughs> right. And even then, this, yeah, even then, this governmental uh, tone uh, pollutes that as well. Yeah, they're trying. To so, in, but I could see that there was. Yeah, I could see exactly. You can see the emotional. T- that's something else we didn't divert to. But anyway, so I could see in that early days, I could see that this emotional tone value um, was present all the time about Antarctica. But to a, a great extent, it was um, extraneous to and irrelevant within the uh, actual events that were occurring. And so that's when I started getting into the idea that, oh, okay, this is some kind of an official level of spin about Antarctica. And that really that really was even more intriguing because why should the government of Britain, the government of U.S., government of France, EU, it didn't matter where, mm-hmm. have this basic set of language that they always referred to relative to Antarctica. And then things changed in 2002. And, and we started getting a big flush of actual in the media, on the internet, out and about language in our face about Antarctica that began in 2002. And I know, now I know why, in retrospect, it did begin then, but none of the language at that time was about the events that actually uh, preceded this. So in 2002... No, but then you, then, then you actually have a way to, to smoke out covert stuff too. But, sure, uh, sure. Uh, what what was the official wave that came out uh, in 2002 uh, among people? What was uh, the fuss about Antarctica then in the media and stuff? Well, in the in the um, initial rush of it all, in the officialdom version of it all, it was let's just say um, uh, let's see if we can characterize it as a mild tourism exploitation of the hidden continent. So Mm. in essence, it was a form of disclosure where officialdom started promoting uh, the idea that um, if you had an inclination and you were wealthy enough, you could go on a cruise and tour Antarctica. And before that, we'd had cruises. But uh, after this point in 2002, the uh, tone on all of it had changed. Uh, there were individual companies, for instance, that were prior to 2002 that were touting their ability to take you on a cruise in Antarctica. But after that, you actually saw discussions within government, state-sponsored media, uh, and so on, referencing these con- uh, companies and their uh, cruises. And they did it with a level of a, a tone that said, oh, yeah, Antarctica is now just going to be like um, – you know, a cruise off of South America or a cruise to the Mediterranean. It'll be a recreational outlet. You can stay on this boat. You'll be safe, but you'll be able to see all of this really interesting stuff. And then that would go back to the idea of reinforcing uh, our current concepts of the of the continent. And this was in juxtaposition. Yeah, in Norway, we have uh, cruise uh, companies who maybe they started back then. I seem to recall that became a thing uh, a decade ago, cruising down there. Because, you know, Norwegians have always had uh, <clears throat> a special relation to the Poles, both of them, you know. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So that's been a popular cruising destination. It's true. And and it popped up then, and, and it was basically, so to speak, um, spontaneous in terms of how it appeared. But it appeared within my data sets because my data sets – 
I, I are sort of backward looking in the sense that I'm looking at data that was gathered 18 or 20 days ago, and I can see it all in a sort of a totality because I have these various metrics and analytics that I apply. Mm-hmm. I was able to say, isn't this curious? We've got a, our government here in the USA. We've got governments throughout the EU. We've even got governments in Russia mm-hmm. uh, that are all in the Russia wasn't in great shape in 2002. Um, we've got all these governments that are touting the idea of Antarctica as a cruising destination and putting it in all of this relatively mundane language. And that's what intrigued me because the difference was that the um, other spontaneous discussions about Antarctica did not involve any mundane levels of language. Everybody was at a very much hyper level of uh, emotional um, input and reaction within the language, and it was discussing all kinds of weird anomalies and everything mm-hmm. strange and how intriguing. Basically, we could say that the it was a, a difference between um, a mundane view of a cruising destination versus the intriguing, mind-grabbing um, mystery that was Antarctica in everybody else's imagination. And so I wondered why, in our language that's coming out, is the government promoting this idea of a flattening of what is a currently rising emotional trend about Antarctica. Mm. Now, did the government know the emotional trend about Antarctica was rising or were they merely reacting in a pre-planned kind of a way to external events that had nothing to do with language on the internet? Because as far as I know, they didn't even care about the emotional tones of the of language and so forth in the 90s. I mean, even mainstream media were, were basically, you know, saying internet, huh? Email, huh? Yeah. No, if anyone was studying stuff like that, it would have to be CIA and and similar. Right. And so it brings up a big issue. Well, let me go right to the heart of what what occurred, okay? Sure. We didn't didn't know it then, and it wasn't until a number of years later that it became evident, or or at least um, became known in a more general fashion. But in 2002, um, let's say... We'll assume it's U.S. military, but we don't know for sure. But satellites over Antarctica discovered something under the ice. Right. And it was a huge something. It was gigantic. We still don't know what it is. They still won't discuss it. It causes magnetic disturbances um, in the Earth's magnetic field so far out that it can be sensed out 300 miles away from the planet. And um, this, this unknown thing at that time had occurred in 2002. Now, I was not aware it had occurred in 2002, even though I had hints in the data um, in 2001 that there was going to be a a weirdness, an anomaly, a spaceship or something uh, otherworldly that would be found in Antarctica. But I didn't put any credence to it. I'm not even sure I mentioned it in any of the reports at the time, because at that point, um, it was... um, not as uh, prevalent or as uh, prominent within the linguistic radar, so to speak. Mm. And so it was like a, a passing sort of a thing. And I didn't know how prescient it would be until a number of years later when we find out that there's this large magnetic anomaly uh, under the ice uh, that uh, is not part of the continent itself. In other words, there's something sitting on the on the Antarctic continent that's underneath the ice that is still able to throw out a magnetic field disturbance 300 miles out. Would this happen to be in the Vostok, Lake Vostok area? No, no, it's not. It's more towards um, uh, New Schwabenland, which you you can't find much of on Antarctic photos. It's always uh, NASA and everybody else always uh, blurs it out the way they do all their other planetary photos. Yeah. 
but that goes for that goes for everything but the coast. Correct. It's like they put cartoons out on, on <laughs> Google Earth, and people think they're watching snow, right? But, right. Right. But, but I ask about Vostok because I'm gonna interview a British fellow who has, and I, I, I'm amazed this isn't all over the internet already. He's come out with a book about what the Russians found in the 60s, actually, yeah. all the way back, I think it's 65. And they kept it completely under wraps. Uh, it's leaked out after the Soviet fall. But what they found was a bunch of remnants from an extremely ancient civilization and uh, in allegedly and uh, these the, it was these urns uh, if you, that's what you call it like kind of vases sure, sure. that had uh, amphorae yeah amphorae that had scriptures in them so you know about this i, I know about it from the russian uh i'm my my speaking of russian is very bad but i do much better at reading at it. Um, the the words of verbs of motion really destroy me in in Russian. It really tweaks my poor little brain. But um, no, I'm well aware of this. This wow. was uh, quite intriguing. We don't see much of this. At the same time that that came out, uh, I, okay. So we find uh, Vostok. There's some. Um, conjecture in the 60s in the Russian literature that Vostok might be a, um, a, a really cool biological repository. And then at the same time, you've got uh, physical scientists that are saying, wait a second, guys, uh, the readings we're getting here just don't make a lot of sense mm. if it's just a lake. Mm. And so that's that's a sort of um, a little encapsulation of what happened with the big satellite uh, find in 2002. And it is it's in the same half of Antarctica, and it, but it is northwest of, of Vostok. So it's more towards New Schwabenland that they found this magnetic. Yeah, by the way, I take issue with that name. It's called Queen Maud's Land, goddammit, and we own it. <laughs> At least at the paper. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Right, right. Of course, it's the Americans who, who do what they want down there. But right, it's right. supposed to be our territory. Anyway, go on. Well, and you know. That alone is is still in, really intriguing. Uh, you know, uh, a continent that is um, the fifth largest on the planet, and that is, uh, you would think, even under the circumstances, would have been a giant commercial uh, land rush, yeah. and yet it's never occurred. And you know, it's been, uh, shall we just say, coordinated and um, cordoned off. Well, well, the cover story. No, no, the cover story is that oh, it's so pristine, and we have to. Uh, preserve it and you know okay but Lockheed Martin and, and Pentagon and, and the worst bastards on the earth can uh, run havoc down there <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that you know that they have. There were a number of yeah. Americans that were were injured in the nuclear accident that occurred in the late seventies. There, wow. uh, America was running a nuclear uh, power plant, and it uh, um, went into hype. What hyper in Antarctica? Yeah, you didn't know this. No, no, and I bet many listeners too. So, okay, I'll see if I can find it, but I don't know if I can. But there's a movie out. Yeah. Uh, that, that was filmed on a uh, 35 millimeter film in the seventies by the U S army and tangentially within that movie, they show and discuss as they're walking around, they show the damage that was done as, as the nuclear pile, it was a portable nuclear power plant, something that was about twice the size of what we would think of as a storage container today. Mm. And it went bad. And, uh, they had a big problem in, in the base. I can't think of the name of the base at the moment. Um, and it, uh, it, it should be relatively easy to, um, track down, except that a lot of it 
that we see now was released under Freedom of Information Act only. So they didn't really want to acknowledge the problems that they'd created because you weren't, A, supposed to have nuclear waste or, mm, or exactly. nuclear storage. But nonetheless, they had an active nuclear power plant there. Jeez, it should be a it should be a huge global scandal. Oh, exactly. Because it goes against all agreements, everything. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But you know, the Russians were were smarter, according to what I've been told. They didn't bother to set the power plants up on the uh, land. They just tucked a nuclear sub over there and ran a cable out of it. Yeah, exactly. So, but, but in any event, so you see all these weird things about Antarctica, but at the same time that we get the Vostok stuff, there were a number of, um, let's just say, uh, surreptitiously taken movies by the Russians of the Americans and what the Americans were doing. And the Russians also released maybe 15 years ago, uh, uh, I've seen three films uh, I think there's many more. They're usually fairly brief on the order of, say, six or eight minutes each, whereas the one from the U.S. Army is probably an hour and a half. Mm. But they they basically were showing, uh, we could think of it in a, in a comic book way, as Russian spies over the hill making a movie of the Americans making a movie of what they were doing. Yeah, because it, <laughs> it seemed to be of the same sights and things. And so, for instance, in the American movie, they show a bulldozer trundling across a flat plain with no ice. There's no ice or snow anywhere in sight. People are out there working in shirt sleeves. And this bulldozer goes across this plain and scoop at the base of a mountain and just starts scooping out pristine anthracite coal. Each of the lumps that are uh, about three pounds each, there's a, a, a scene where the uh, military uh, photographer, the camera crew, is in front of someone who knows what they're talking about, also in military gear, um, army gear, the uh, old uh, 60, 50s and 60s khakis. Mm-hmm. And he's standing there talking about, or excuse me, um, field greens. Uh, and he's standing there uh, talking about these lumps of coal and how odd this is. And he points out that in this single mountain, 200 plus feet high um, off of that plane uh, and of a base of a certain size. And he was comparing it basically to the Giza pyramid. And he said, there's enough anthracite coal here in that particular time that the movie was made to produce enough electricity for the United States for 200 years. And he said, we know that this is one of 12 or 1500 piles of, of three pound lumps of anthracite coal. And he said, it wasn't mined. It's not, enclosed in anything. He said, it, it, you know, you don't have to do anything to get it, just scoop it up. And it's all clean, it's all washed, it's all ready to go, wow. and it's some of the best anthracite they've ever seen. Not in the ground. And in that same film, they show a number of um, GIs, uh, you know, army guys, uh, that go to this uh, very thin lake. Uh, they can walk way out into the middle of the lake, and it's only, you know, barely shin deep. And it's extremely pure water. They're drinking the water. And the guy said, you know, if it was only a little bit hotter, our British guys would, could make tea out of it. And they're out there basically bathing in 80 plus degree water. This isn't a, a, a remake. This is a documentary. No, this was an original film. Uh, you would call it a documentary, correct? Yeah. It was made made by the army right. uh, for their own internal use, right. and right. it was ne- never for public consumption. And you hear that in the language that was being stated. Right. A lot of lot of what we would think of as cursing, as you you know, the soldiers are going about their business and doing the kind of stuff, and the usual grousing about the food's bad. We wish we had this, and yeah. you know that that kind of thing, right? Mm. But it was sort of a one would think of as like um, a situation report for higher-ups as to what was actually found there. Mm. 
And then curiously, we see this is continuing today. We get a brand new administration here in the United States. And the very first thing that, that occurs is that the president sends a trustworthy associate down to Antarctica theoretically to go paddle with the penguins but it's like hmm you know you send Newt, You're referring gingrich to Newt gingrich the grinch correct correct what was his purpose right and it was right uh, after the other fellow uh the heinz guy Kerry. what's his name yep, again yep. Kerry, yeah Kerry. ketchup boy uh, yeah mm. yeah and he goes down there on the most important day for his particular party ever election day yeah yeah and just to do look at ice for global warming, mm. right? Yeah, sure. You really think we're that stupid? <laughs> and of all the places for studying global warming, why go to the most inconvenient and allegedly hardest <laughs> to get to? He, he could go to Greenland. He could right. go to Svalbard. He could go to the North Pole even. It would be simpler. Right. So something something is up there. Oh, yeah. Now, yeah, and so there's all kinds of very interesting um, physical things. So, uh, so I saw that that uh, movie, and it is out there on the internet somewhere. It was not like on YouTube, as far as I know. It was on a. Um, I'm trying to recall. I saw it so many years ago, and at the time, I didn't have the storage capacity to save it because I have everything. You know, at the time, I was operating all of the servers and everything and the basic machines. But did I disclose the location? Was it the Vostok area? No, no. As to where they were in the films, uh, no. It was a. Uh, it was in the um, uh, actually the other side of the Antarctic continent from uh, Vostok. So you would think of it if you looked. If you put Vostok at uh, at the top of a map, it would be uh, down and to the right. And that whole coastline area that they were showing was ice free and was at a reasonably decent temperature. And as they went to it in that movie, and as they left it, went out to the, see other stuff on the other side, they actually crossed um, uh, with their Jeeps, they crossed rivers that were steaming in the open air. And if you looked in the, as the camera did at one point, way back to the origin of the river, they could see that the river was coming out of the ice and creating a fog at the base of the ice where it was coming out because it was that warm. And they noted at the time... I this, this is straight out of the diary of Bird. Sure, sure, exactly. He was he was quite correct. Mm. And there, you know, the in the movie, the, the end scene of this movie, and like I say, it was like over an hour, I think an hour and a half or something. And in the end scene where the uh, camera guy is wrapping it all up for whoever he is reporting to, and you can tell from his language, he's not attempting to report for a general audience. I, I don't remember the insignia on his jacket, but I would have thought he was like at a major or a colonel rank. Uh, and so that alone is unusual because usually they would have someone at a lower rank, uh, maybe a lieutenant or a captain as the, as the spokesperson for a camera crew. But this was a higher level of, uh, investigation, so to speak. And this guy was more senior. And so it's not like seeing a young man there. So in, mm. uh, in the time this movie was made, uh, this fellow was probably in his fifties and he was talking about how he personally found that it was a lot more pleasant on his body than he'd anticipated because he apparently thought he was going to have to be, you know, completely housed in a spacesuit kind of things to avoid the cold. And here he is standing in a normal um, green field jacket out in this uh, very large field at this desert area. And he's pointing out all of the green. And he says, this is not algae. He says, these are some kind of plants that we just don't know about that are a step between algae and something else. 
And so, and there's this field of green that, you know, you and I would think of as maybe several hectares mm. and he's, he's standing out in it. And then he's saying, we can see that it, it fades out. And then over here, you can see the, the glaciers, uh, or the snow begin and the glaciers begin. And at that time, at the end of that, that movie, he's speculating as to how few years would be left before all of the ice would be gone in a much greater region. And this was of interest because throughout this greater region are many, many, many of these conical, uh, let's call them hills. And they're wondering, are these hills all anthracite or could there be other minerals and stuff there? Mm. I'm looking at the map now. You said it was on the opposite side of Vostok. Yeah. Let me, let me. So that um, would be Mary Bird's land maybe, or. Probably something like that. Let me see if I can get a map here. Yeah. Okay, so if if Vostok is up at the top, it's down at the, uh, it would be down to the bottom and over to the right. In the map I'm looking at it, it shows deglaciated Antarctic topography, and it shows these areas that are brown along this particular. We, we have Amundsen Sea. Maybe it's easier to go by the seas. Uh, Bellinghausen Sea, way down. I'm going to have to get another map for that. Hang on. Because the exact opposite side of Vostok is Argentina. That's uh, South Shetland Islands and stuff like that. Right. That's between Weddell Sea and Berlinghausen Sea and uh, in famous Schwabenland. Or- okay, so it'd be over. All right, so um, it would be more towards the Ross Sea, okay? And it would be down here. Let me get some glasses on just a second. All right, down there. That's a New Zealand claim. So it would be Oatsland, Georgeland, Terra Aldale, so Queen Maryland down through Wilkesland, down through um, Georgeland into Oaksland mm. was the area area in which they finished their journey, and because they had been going along this trans uh, Atlantic or trans Antarctic mountain range. Um, when they first started off on the, on the little movie they made, mm. and I think they actually start off in. Uh, Palmer, Palmer land for a few of the scenes and then, uh, go around to the mountains. And then there's a, an edited area of the movie where he says, basically, you know, for three days, we just drove along the, on this ice, uh, area, uh, along this, um, uh, with the mountain range over on our right. And then they pop out at the end of it, and that's where we see all of these warm areas and these other things going on. But it makes a total sense because Rossi is uh, gets you closer access to the center. It has less landmass as a buffer. Correct. And um, uh, yeah, so we can only. Spe- Do you have any idea of what? Because if stuff is warm, it would be easier for them to find things. Obviously, in this in these videos, they point to the practical stuff, the economical stuff, like coal. The Russians are big on coal, right? But yeah, that means uh, it's much easier for them because I'm convinced that you will find stuff pristinely preserved, not just in Antarctica, but in all places that has been buried like Sahara Desert, like Greenland. If you have the paradigm that the man has lived million of years, like there are researchers who have indisputable evidence for this, and we have a series on that too. Sure. So there has to be traces of uh, ancient antediluvian civilization in these places, especially uh, if you think that um, 
before the flood, uh, the catastrophe and all that, the water levels were much lower. So you would find things that are buried today. Uh, and in Antarctica, that would be frozen today. And you have to go very far back. Do you know uh, about when they are the conventional idea of when Antarctica got frozen? Do you have an idea? <laughs> I, I know what they say. The conventional yeah. idea is what that, that you know they're they're saying between thirteen and thirty million years. Okay, thirteen and thirty million. Well, it's still within range of when there were human beings on Earth. So. But, but on to, the other hand, I don't believe that for a minute. I mean, I think that that is a, a fantasy, a, a, um, yeah. some uh, no, and in an, an entirely weird fantasy as well. Um, so I do um, sailing and have since I was a kid. I've been involved with uh, boats and water all of my life. My father was building, and I helped him when I was like five years old, mm. build boats in Alaska, which is mm. something he did. And so I've been um, involved in that world for a long time. And there's a number of things that you find in the boating world, uh, including a number of maps and references, should one care to get into it, that discuss Antarctica as though it had no ice on it. And this was within a living, uh, at the time, a living human's memory. So in other words, Aristotle wrote about Antarctica. Now, true, everybody says he was writing his meteorology book uh, and using Antarctica in a general sense in the Greek word, meaning opposite the Arctic Pole. And he could have actually been, as far yeah. as they were concerned, you know, referring to the Mediterranean. I don't. Francis Bacon too. I think they call it the antipodes or something like that. Correct, yeah. correct. And see, there, and see, I don't buy that. I don't. I don't buy that they were using. I don't accept the idea that they were using language that imprecise. When throughout the rest of the, you know, why should he use that word in an imprecise fashion when everything else he did was as as precise as could possibly get to get comprehension. But, but, but we have better evidence even. Uh, I know you're a language guy, but as you certainly know, we have uh, lots of ancient maps. Oh, and sure. The most yeah, yeah, yeah. famous being Piri Rice. And that you can't explain away. You can't explain away a coastal free, uh, ice free area. Correct. Where, uh, because after we developed instruments to find out how the country is shaped underneath there, then it confirmed those maps. Before that, you could doubt. Right, right. <laughs> but not today. You can't doubt it. It's impossible. So if it's within the range of our current memory, it can't be that old. Correct. 10,000 maybe, 20,000. We have, and we have other stranger... Um, anecdotal kind of evidence that something occurred okay so um, many uh, researchers use like indigenous population mythos and they try and uh, correlate the mythos across cultures and come up with an understanding and thus we have an idea that many cultures discussed the great flood that sort of thing right mm. uh, we also find that many cultures have this idea of a great war in heaven now a curious thing is that uh, in the pacific rim uh, or in the Pacific Basin, uh, in a number of different languages that extends from New Zealand all the way up to where I live in the um, land of the Salish Sea and the, the Tinglet, which is the northern peoples uh, here, we have language that goes to the idea of the Great War and Antarctica being frozen during that Great War where uh, the Sahara uh, was burned. Uh, 
Mm. And so the, the Sahara Desert exists now uh, because it was destroyed. And this is actually curiously where we find all those huge areas of, you know, radioactive green glass and remnants of um, ancient civilizations that are two feet high because they've been wiped out by some kind of directed energy weapon or whatever infused into this green glass under the sand. Mm. And this this effect, the descriptions in the Salish language and even in through the Micronesia, Melanesia, the islands in the in the South Pacific, there's um, – I guess you'd have to call them like creation myths that would focus about, uh, let's just say, just give us a round number, 20,000 years ago, there was this great war. And in the, in the Salish understanding of things, um, Antarctica was frozen at that time as a weapon of war. Or the people that lived there were destroyed by freezing the way the ones that lived in, in uh, Egypt in that area in the in the Sahara and Sub-Sahara were destroyed by the fire, mm-hmm. and it was actually a radiative kind of fire. So the Salish have the idea that that uh, the sky people brought down the sun to scour that area there, and then brought up the cold, along with a, a giant influx of water in order to freeze Antarctica. So just just curious, you know, and you start thinking about it, and then of course you start looking at some of the. Uh, 1920s, 1930s, 1910s, um, periodical sailing literature. And they talk about in the um, uh, 40-year-old man in 1910 talking about sailing with his, uh, on a particular voyage as a um, uh, cabin boy and, and sailing up past, just casually mentioned that, oh yeah, we had to sail up past all the Egyptian stelae that line the um, access routes into the Mississippi River uh, near, um, uh, in Louisiana. Jeez. And, and it, so it's like stelae, Egyptian stelae. And, and then he talks about, yeah, we rounded, uh, stel number 160 and then the river was there and it was clear. So we knew we were out of that particular channel and that this was in the 1880s. And so, uh, in this man's early youth, when he was like 15 or 16 and serving on a boat, as part of the navigation, they went around these stelae and used ancient uh, Egyptian stelae with various different languages, hieroglyphics, and so on uh, uh, as part of their navigation. And I find that this is also referenced in many of these sailing periodicals that um, even up to the ones where, that are uh, descriptions of history, of boats in history. And they, they talk hang, on, hang on, we are, we are now straight into Harry Hubbard territory. Do you know about Harry Hubbard? Sorry, I don't. No. Okay, I'm going to have him on. Um, maybe even for this series, actually. Uh, so uh, he has, he's like this renegade rebel. He's, well, he's a collector of, he reads old stuff. He has, uh, he collects old stuff and books and everything. The same here. And I've got, I've got the books. Exactly. I could actually point you to the books, except everything's boxed up. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, it's so revised. What we learn today is a total lie, even within our recent history. You don't have to go well, far back to see completely different narratives uh, compared correct. to what we learn today, correct. right? And so it, this that's why I'm saying this, because he, he, he also has claims that you have Eastern uh, people uh, present in, in America and stuff like that. So, yeah, just a, just a reference there. Sure, and you know... Um, uh, okay, some weird things. I mean, relatively to that, there were um, 
Chinese markers, Chinese uh, navigation markers that were along the west coast of the U.S., scooped up by the uh, Smithsonian and stashed away in the early 50s or destroyed or whatever. Yeah. And that's also, I've got a, somewhere around here, I've got a really good book that I like because the guy is discussing the evolution of multi-hulled craft and how they actually originated from Egypt. And they were not an invention of the um, Pacific Islanders. They were a copy and an, and an evolution of uh, the Egyptians' double-hulled sailing craft that they used to go from Egypt to, to Australia. Right. And that they used to trade in Australia for certain kinds of items and would offer gold, silver, and um, foods and um spices. Yeah, but genetics confirmed that because the natives in um, is it New Zealand, I think, are partly uh, Caucasian derived. Sure, the Maori. Yep, yeah. yep. <clears throat> and and so we know, we know but he this here was this uh, historian though that was looking at all of these boat types and just uh he wrote I I want to say he wrote in the late 1800s and he was talking about the long history of, and he was actually arguing that we should be moving into multi-hulls. That was his premise. Right. And I'm a multi-hull kind of a guy, right? So I, I like this. Anyway, <laughs> I was reading his book about it all. Mm-hmm. And he was talking there about sailing to particular spots in um, New Zealand that had uh, underwater stell. And he was actually taking on a, taken on a dive, a free dive, no you know uh, external oxygen or anything. And they only went down perhaps 20 some odd feet and they were able to see these stell that were sitting on the bottom of this particular area oh, wow. uh, and I, I regret I don't remember any of the details I read this so long ago yeah. but what was intriguing was he compared them to the stell that he saw being removed in the early 50s from the Louisiana Delta areas right. that used to be acting as uh, accurate uh, all season uh, navigation markers and they were removed and he was actually aware of and wrote in his little book um, uh, this other fellow, not, not the guy from the 1890s, but the, this other guy uh-huh. wrote that he saw in the 1951, two and three, uh, the Smithsonian project to remove and, and quote, categorize and, and preserve all of these stale, Stella and the Stella. And, um, uh, this fellow's discussion was not so much about the, um, the double hold, um, stuff, but he referenced the guy from the 1880s and I went and read his book about the Stella, uh, the Stella underneath the, um, uh, Maori lands and the fellow that wrote in the 1800s had been in both places and compared them and said they were essentially the same height and were, were of the same level of navigation marker. Mm-hmm. And so he was of the conclusion that the ocean levels had, uh, risen extremely high uh, because as far as he knew, you know, just from a brief dive and they looked the same, they had the same four different kinds of languages on the, um, you know, um, hieroglyphic. And, um, I don't, again, I don't remember the other three, uh, that were attached to the Stella in, in the Maori lands, but getting it back to Antarctica, that was one of the things was there's a Stell in, um, or there was a Stell at the very end of the Louisiana Delta, uh, matrix of you of navigation that that basically said Africa is that way, <laughs> South America is that way, Antarctica is this far away that way, and in mm. Asia is this far away that way, right. just the way we do now. And see, I find that so human, right? Yeah. You go down to Antarctica, what do you see in McMurdo Bay? You see a stick in the ground with all these signs on it that says San Francisco, you know, so many thousand miles that way, or wherever people are from. We always put markers to where we're from when we go to new places like this. Sure. So I certainly think that that was indeed just how humans behave. And we're doing it through the through the millennia here. Mm. 
Right. Wow. There's so much here. Um, we, we were at the ancient uh, part of this equation. We're going to move up to more modern times, but we could rush through through the ancient connections to Antarctica now. Oh, sure. Uh, obviously, many people think Atlantis was in Antarctica because they make a big deal of it being submerged and uh, the ice being there. But I... I don't think so, actually, uh, because first off, uh, I'm pretty sure Atlantis was where all the ancient sources said it was, namely in the Antarctic, uh, sorry, in the Atlantic Ridge. But we have to get away from this idea that Atlantis was a particular place. It was a global civilization, according to the best research out there. And obviously, like today, right, you would say that all modern technological advanced countries have more or less the same culture today. Uh, we right. have crushed the, the many of the native cultures. So if a, a catastrophe would happen, sure, you could talk about America like or USA like, but even USA is everywhere now with bases everywhere. They're like <laughs> McDonald's, like everything. Right. So sure, you would have something advanced there. But another reason I don't think it's what we classically refer to as Atlantis is because of what some of the decoded scriptures that the Russian found seems to indicate that this was, and they allegedly claimed them themselves that they were a colony or a renegade culture from the main culture of the globe back then. Uh, I'm going to go more into these details with that chap. I'm going to have on for this specific program. So uh, we don't have to talk too much about that now. But sure. so I just want to make that caveat there that even if there was an advanced culture underneath the ice there, it doesn't have to mean this is where Atlantis, classical Atlantis is. It was just one of many places on Earth before the flood, before the change, the huge global change of of the geography so yeah i would just want to put that down there you have any thoughts about this sure actually i i would agree that it's a we should read atlantis as in a different fashion but i saw this very nice um analysis once that went with a corresponding map and if you take a map and you have a you know how we have a mercator projection it's sort of like the globe mm. flattened out uh, if you do that with the South Pole, with um, Antarctica as the center of it, though, you get a different kind of a, a, a resulting map, and it, it matches exactly the description of Atlantis as being a central island uh, surrounded by the ocean that all these other islands, so to speak, are all pointing at. And right. uh, you get this uh, impression, and if you read it to the exact descriptions, then uh, Antarctica probably was, if we want to think of it, was at that point the center or the originating resource base for that global civilization. And it and it also occupies a very curious place in the sense that nowadays <clears throat> the Southern Ocean is very terrible um, place to go sailing to cross. Yeah. Uh, you know because there's the continual storms in the in the 50s and the 60s uh, of latitude. And uh, because there's no land to break that up. But if we were to look at this with um, the ice removed off of there, you get a, this weird twofold effect. Everybody says, oh, well, if all the ice on Antarctica melted, then the global oceans would rise X number of feet. 
And I would dispute that. And the reason I dispute that is because so much of the continent is pushed down by the weight of the ice. And so if the ice is actually removed, I'm of the opinion that we would have a global uh, reduction in um, uh, water mass and everybody's coastline would get a lot bigger. And we do see some level of investigation now by the powers that be into what is off the coast of Antarctica the current coastline of Antarctica and there, and you see people going down with submarines and they're doing studies, supposedly counting volcanoes and stuff. And I think they're looking for other things, Mm. just the way that Graham Hancock went off the coast of India and was able to find all of these civilizations there. And so we, we have to think about these, um, uh, matters in a slightly larger way. And Japan and Cuba and correct. uh, Correct. Correct. Bimini every, everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. See, I've seen that personally off the, the, um, uh, the coast of Bermuda and these kinds of things when I was a kid, because you sail over them, right? You look down there as a kid, you're not usually doing much. You're hanging your head over the side of the boat and you're looking into the water and you, and you think, hmm, what is that down there? And, you know, some of these things can be seen as um, eye-catching, eye-candy curiosities just from the surface of the water. You don't have to look that deep off of some of the islands off Bermuda and so on in the Caribbean. And so if we have that same kind of an effect, then it might be that if the ice off Antarctica was removed and we had a more even level of of, um, precipitation and redistribution of that around the planet, that we would lose water mass in the oceans. And that Mm. would cause a different kind of conditions to exist around Antarctica that would match to the sailing conditions that were described for Atlantis. Because that's really the only discrepancy that I saw. Yeah, but it would still be cold there, though. No, because no. of the way the Earth is tilted right now. No, the, uh, per, sorry, but I dispute that that causes the poles to occur and be cold at all. All right. Oh, let's hear. Let's hear. Okay, so first off, uh, Earth has never um, orbited the um, equator of the Sun. That's a myth. No planets, none of our planets actually orbit the equator of a sun. We're actually, the sun is a comet-like structure and we're being drugged behind in the debris. Mm. And every Venus transit proves this because as the Venus transits between us and the sun, we can easily see this stair step it does. A weird stair step um, uh, from the uh, uh, lower right to the upper left as it goes across the face of the sun relative to us. And and that is just a two-dimensional graphic representation of its spiral that is happening between us and the sun. And we can't detect the spiral, so we see its shadow, its, its um, uh, eclipse, so to speak, uh, uh, as a stair step across the face of the sun. If we orbited the equator of the, of the sun, we would never see the outer planets except for some 30 days a year based on the amount of light coming out of the sun it would totally occlude our ability to see anything beyond us out into space so since we can see the outer planets continuously since we do have such things as the venus and the mercury transits that show us show them going in a stair-step fashion we have validated uh, the idea that we have a helical model of a solar system not a heliocentric all right so Mm. in that in that model um, none of our temperature is related to solar irradiation angles. So in other words, it wouldn't matter if Earth were standing straight up. We would still have a pole. We would still have cold areas. And they these re- exist because of the inherent toroid shape 
of the planet at all of its energetic levels. So mm. Earth is thought, thought of as an oblate spheroid, a lumpy sort of a sphere, right? Uh, but in fact, if you wanted to look at it at an energy level, at our magnetic field level, for instance, is all that's as far as we have to go. Mm. The magnetic field of the planet is not a complete sphere. It is like this sort of um, orange with a hole punched through its middle from top to bottom. And that is where the magnetic field lines go back into the radiate into or out of the planet. Something that may even reflect physically. Correct, exactly. It does reflect physically because here's what happens. At the level of those magnetic... No, I mean, I mean like a hollow Earth. And it may indeed reflect that. I'm not going that far, though, okay? I'm just mm. talking about the magnetics right now and why the North Pole and sure. the South Pole are cold. But th this is a good point to broadcast that I'm going to go that far with someone else, a scientist who, who will make a scientific case for a hollow Earth, actually. <laughs> sure. Uh, and, and many yeah, people and think would, <laughs> all planets are hollow. So, and that opens indeed. up so many possibilities. But let's not touch that right now. I want you to continue your thread. Okay, so here's the, here's the thought. Yeah. Everybody is, we are told that the pole in the north is cold because it's tilted away from yeah. uh, the uh, sun. Mm. And, the, and that the pole in the south at, the, at their summer is tilted towards it, so they become warmer. And we can see that this is not really accurate in that sense in a number of different ways. But one thing we, we can actually look at is the magnetic lines. And the magnetic lines um, are, are always at the center of where we have our coldest uh, point. And that is frequently not the furthest point away from the sun in terms of our tilt. So that kind of like disputes the, um, mm. the generalized idea that it's the, the angle that causes this. And what really what happens is the magnetism causes the uh, influx of other magnetic fields that bring down and push out, so to speak. They bring down cold from space, if you want to think of it that way. And that's why we have these cold areas that are in the poles. It, it doesn't have to do with, with our angle at all, even though everything in our particular solar system has this uh, kick, you know, over a particular number of degrees. We all have this precession, including atoms and so on. Yeah. Uh, but we, we don't have solar incidence levels that are lower. And in fact, in winter, you can go on up into the uh, Arctic and get solar incidence levels that are much higher than you find at the equator at that point sometimes. Yeah, and the snow is still there, the ice is still there. But that means that Correct. if the Earth's internal system was to change, the magnetic situation, that could also change. The, could that explain why the South Pole is getting warmer? Correct. And that's also why a few years back we would have these instances of where uh, areas in your neck of the woods, so to speak, in the far north of Europe and in um, South America and even in Africa, we would have these instances where you would read uh, 114 sheep froze to death overnight with this sudden um, shocking, uh, you know, what they now call a polar vortex, only at the time it was very much more localized. And this went on from, say, 2001 through 2009 with some level of intensity. And uh, I notice curiously that what, a, what occurs when the sun decides to have a, a magnetic pole flip and go north to south. Like it just did. Correct. And it will have dozens and dozens and dozens of south poles all scattered all around the region, a generalized region of its south area. 
And each one of these south poles will be magnetically as energetic as any of the others. And they'll ultimately, they'll all sort of collapse into one or two that will then merge into what we would then call the more stable south pole. So for Right, some, so they battle for, for what's going to be the central point and eventually that equals out to, the, yeah, I see what you mean. That, that's uh, the sun though, right? You're talking about. Yeah, but that's the process, that's the process of a magnetic pole flip yeah. uh, or magnetic pole um, instability, if you will. So should we expect something similar going on right now on Earth? Correct. And we've had that. These instances where magnetic poles would form in the northern hemispheres or in the southern hemisphere, and where they formed, they would cause virtual instant glaciation kind of conditions such that animals would freeze in mid-step. And this was the same kind of thing we saw in... So say, that could explain uh, the m- mammoths with grass in the belly rather than correct. tilt. Correct. Exactly. has nothing to do with tilt. And, and also another thing it can explain is that the Vikings, it's called Greenland because when they came there, it was green and they were farming it just like they did on Iceland. Sure, sure. Yeah, However, yeah. it's been a huge mystery up here ever since the, medi- uh, ever since, yeah, the medieval ages. They were di- discussing in my hometown, Bergen. We have documents that show that in the tavernas in Bergen, in the... Uh, 14th century and stuff, they were discussing what happened with our Norsemen in Greenland because they were not the Icelandic, they survived, they weren't cut off. So they're speculating that because it became suddenly icy, they were forced to move south to Newfoundland and places like there. But be that as it may, the point is that it was so warm Without there having been any tilt or global catastrophe, <laughs> they're talking correct, about ice, correct. small ice age, etc. But uh, I'm not so sure that's that's just a word they use. They don't understand the process. So it's it's pretty dramatic. And the process may begin with you know right. And it may. I was just going to say it may begin with very dramatic uh, interpolar instability that creates these uh, what we think of now as a polar vortex that brings down just huge amounts of freezing cold just as we've seen here in the uh, United States and in Northern Hemisphere these past few years where we've had these extreme uh, weather um, pegs so to speak in our cycles right mm-hmm. new records being broken all the time and it and it probably relates much more to I'm certain it relates much more to magnetic instability than um any other single factor, including solar output. Yeah, but you're not, just to be clear, you're not saying that the sun doesn't have anything to do with uh, climate, right? It's no, just a no, traditional, no, no. It's just a traditional interpretation you, 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 you're iconoclasting here. But the sun is still relevant. Correct. The sun is even more relevant because, of course, now you have to understand that the sun's, what happens magnetically to the sun is reflected to all of these planets that are being drugged behind it through space. And so, so the magnetism is merely the mm, initiating vehicle by which we see these things occur. But again, the origination of it all is still from the sun. Our magnetic instability is necessarily uh, tied to the sun. As above, so below, yeah. Yeah, and now another aspect of this has to do with what I call the expando Earth model, okay? Mm-hmm. And so there's never been a, uh, a physical pole flip on the United or in the uh, in Earth. In the um, there's never been uh, any number of kinds of catastrophes that people say occurred 
based on the evidence they're able to look at, they're misinterpreting the evidence because they're assuming that Earth has always been the same size. And I, I would dispute that, and I'm of the camp that says that, you know, when the dinosaurs were around, the Earth was probably as much as 60% smaller mm. than we have now. So the Earth is expanding. Correct, and it will continue to do so, and we're in another expansion phase right at this moment. Good for us, because we're so many people here. <laughs> we need more land. <laughs> <laughs> we can use the land, yeah, yeah. Um, and they're not letting sorry. us, you know, hitchhike with a, a classified space fleet, so... We, and they don't let us go down to Antarctica to colonize, so yeah, we're, we need to grow our own, right. Mm. But you know what, but, Cliff? Uh, time has flied more than usual. Uh, and we've talked us back all the way back to the region. So I have a suggestion. Let's take five. Sure. And when we come back, let's work a ways up to modern time, contemporary times, because there's so many mysteries in modern times and also throughout history. So to try to get some kind of order out of this, I bet you're into order since you're a computer guy. So should we try that? Try to work away? Sure, let's, let's yeah. do that. Yeah. And I'll, I'll refresh my tea and be back in five minutes. Sure. And, and you can do the same, folks. Don't go anywhere. We assume you're back. <laughs> All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks.